This morning, our passage is from Mark 9, 14 through 29. It says, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I have brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him on the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Welcome to Trinity Community Church. It's great to see you. It is uh, Baptism Sunday, which I could not be more excited about. If this is your first time here, we're really glad you're with us. I can't imagine a, uh, a better Sunday for you to make your first visit between the baptism and our, our theme for this morning, which is our, our need for renewal. You know, on Friday, there was a, uh, an article that was published. It was in a, uh, a business uh, magazine that I read, and uh, it was about social media influencers, you know, social media influencers. And uh, apparently, a, a few years ago, there was this woman that showed up on social media called uh, Emma. And Emma gained quite a following. She's kind of young, hip, spunky. She now has over 400,000 followers. And so she's always showing up in like really cool places, New York, London, Hong Kong. And she's, she loves cats and she posts things like, you know, self-care Saturday with her cats. Um, as she's grown in popularity, she's begun, you know, advertising for these major brands on social media. She even came out with some of her own uh, music videos this year. Uh, the thing is, though, Emma is not real. She's not a human. She's a, a virtual influencer. She was created in a, in a computer program for social media advertising. Not real, not human. I don't know if I mentioned that. She's not human. Now, when people found out that she was not a real human this year, they were very upset. People couldn't believe it. They had been following this, you know, what they thought was a person for years, she had been responding to their posts. She had, you know, has all these clever things to say. She's been wearing a mask throughout COVID, you know, but not real, like not real if I didn't mention that. She's a virtual influencer. 
Now, apparently, this has become quite a thing. There's, uh, you know, tens of thousands of virtual influencers on social media. And so some of them are posing as underwear and clothing models for well-known brands. They've been featured in IKEA ads. And all of this was taken to the next level during COVID when, like, actual humans, actual models and, and social media influencers couldn't work. They started ramping up these, these non-human, computer-generated influencers. And so these, these, you know, these people, these, these creations uh, on social media, they've, they've been generated in the minds of computer programmers who are, are, are hungry for money and power. Emma made, uh, is expected to make $12 million this year. Again, not a real human if I didn't mention that. But here's what uh, one executive explains. Virtual influencers are cheaper to work with than humans in the long term are 100% controllable, can appear in many places at once, and they never age or die. So kind of fairly obvious to the rest of us, but this executive blown away by the new potential to use virtual influencers for everything. Now me, as I'm reading this on Friday, I don't even know if I can pray for renewal anymore. I'm just like, Lord, burn it down. Like just all of it, just be done with it. Just go Noah's Ark in this place. Like I just don't have any more hope at this point. I mean, our, our, what we're being compared to on social media, these, these models of perfection, they're not even human. There is no way we can compare our lives to the life of somebody who, who has perfect features and, and perfect skin and perfect abs because they're not human. How is this what our world's coming to, that this is our, our desire for perfection? We, we can't stand any blemishes in, in one another and who we are following on social media. My favorite cultural commentator is an Australian, Mark Sayers. I'll probably mention his name every week in this series. He said before that we have been sold a myth. In the Western world, in America, we've been sold this myth that, that things will continue to get better and better and better until they reach a sort of perfection. So as long as we follow the right steps and, and do the right things, we're going to be more beautiful. We're going to be more healthy. We're going to have more control over our lives. We're going to have more money. And then, and then culturally, we're going to have more unity. Our economy is going to be better. Politics will go better. Everything will go better until we reach this kind of perfection, which from social media kind of seems like sitting around in high-end coffee shops, you know, in, in beautiful places and, and just talking about how we solved all the world's problems. And this is a myth. And I think if there's one thing that 2020 has showed us is that this is a myth. We cannot achieve perfection in this life. 2020 has showed us that we, we have very little control over our lives, right? I've lost control. Parents have lost control over their kids' schedules and school. Small businesses have lost control. Our entire healthcare system has lost control control. Our politics don't seem like they're under control. Nobody has control right now. And I don't know if we ever did have control. Maybe that was all an illusion as well. And yet there's something deep within us that's longing for perfection, to be seen as, as perfect, to, to seem like we have it all together, to be without error or blemish or fault. As a result, everyone is, is trying to reach perfection and we all feel like we're failing. So now everyone is hurried and exhausted and burned out in pursuit of this perfection which, which nobody was ever meant to attain. We've been sold a myth. 
And what's so easy to do in our lives when we find ourselves falling short of this ideal of perfection, we begin to blame anything and everything that we can find. But the reality is that that, that our deepest problem, it's not Trump and it's not Biden, it's not millennials, it's not China, it's not the economy, it's not our politics, it's not social media, it's not celebrities, it's not even COVID. Our deepest problem is the condition of the human heart apart from the presence of God. More than anything else, what we need in this life is the presence of God. And our deepest problem, the problem beneath all problems is a lack of the presence of God in our lives. And so in my my estimation, culturally, we've reached this critical point where we've kind of like, we've tried the myth. We, we tried this secularism as a comprehensive way of, of doing and understanding life. And in one generation, it, it totally failed us. And now we're left with this mess and with this crisis and where people are exhausted, but at least they're searching for something. That's been my experience is that people right now are desperate Desperate for renewal. And what I suggested last week is that our culture is both desperate for renewal and ripe for revival. Now, what do I mean by those words? We defined them like this last week. Renewal is the ordinary, ongoing process of growth in Christ that comes through the presence of God. So renewal is the ordinary, ongoing process growth into Christ that comes through the presence of God. And then revival is just the intensification of that renewal. And so revival takes that that ongoing process of renewal and and intensifies it. It makes it it, it extraordinary. It's, It's renewal gone viral. And so revival isn't something totally separate than renewal. Revival is not most, you know, clearly seen when like people are getting healed and bodies are hitting the floor, you know, maybe that happens. But revival is simply an intensification of the normal, ordinary, beautiful process of renewal that we are all desperately needing. And so that's how we're describing renewal and revival in this series. Two things we're going to look at today, our need of renewal and then our role in renewal. Let me pause here and pray for us. Father God, creator and and sustainer of of the whole world, the whole universe. You've set your your sights on your your people, your, your humans, your beloved creation. You've called us, the church, out of this this world to represent you in such a powerful and beautiful way and to be utterly dependent on you. We confess how much we try to do in our own strength and in our own power and and to find control in our own lives. We, We acknowledge, though, that we are desperately in need of you right now, Father. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the... The King, you are the one who has, has opened the way of salvation to us, not because we've, we've earned it, not because we've, we've gotten your attention by our prayerfulness or anything else, but because you died on the cross to bring us back to the Father. And Holy Spirit of God, how much we need you in this moment. I'm reminded that this whole church has been set up in such a way that we will utterly fail unless you show up. That it's not about the right programs and the right ministries or even a great place to meet. It's not about perfect preaching or music or anything else, but we need your spirit right now, God. We are hungry for you. 
We are thirsty for you in a dry and weary land. Would you come, Holy Spirit? Knowing you are already among us, we we cry out like the psalmists and the prophets do, come, Holy Spirit. Awaken us to the glory of God. Awaken us to the sacrifice, the gift, the life that comes in Christ. I'm so encouraged that I can stand up here and and to say that there is hope, there is life, there is power. But it's only found in you, Lord. Would you awaken us, soften our hearts, open our eyes to see you this morning, Lord. We pray in your son's name. Amen. All right, so our need of renewal first. And I could could say a lot about our our world's need of renewal, about the the injustice in our world, about the the incredible need of salvation in our world, the way that our world is in crisis and everything else. But I think we've, we've already begun to cover that, and I think we all sense that. And so I want to begin with the church's need for renewal. Because I think this, this secularism, this pursuit of worldly success, the, the, the desire for control over our lives, the desire to perfect ourselves to death, I think it's all alive and well within the church. I think the church is struggling right now. I know, I know churches exist on, on seemingly every street corner in, in our country, in our own community. I know that there are wonderful churches that are following hard after God in our own midst, and I'm, and I'm so thankful for them. And yet at the same time, I think if we look across the, the church as a whole in our country, we see a lot of, of nominalism and lethargy. Nominalism just means people who are in, in name only Christians. So they consider themselves Christians, and they might even go to church on Christmas and Easter. We call them priesters, but they are, they are nominally believers. They are so in name, but it hasn't affected their life. Now, among those who are, who are in the church regularly, there's still this lethargy, this spiritual tiredness and, and laziness, like a, a, a boredom, just being overwhelmed with life and just trying to get by, something I can resonate with so much. Now, this has often been the case in history, There's a great British scholar from the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he's written this. If you look back across the history of the Christian church, you immediately find that the story of the church has not been a straight line, a linear record of achievement. The history of the church has been a series of ups and downs. You will find that there have been periods in the history of the church where she's been full of life, power, and vigor. These glorious periods of revival and reawakening have often followed periods of great drought, deadness, apathy, and lifelessness within the church. But in that moment has come this mighty uplift, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. And I think that's so helpful to recognize that the church has not just been slowly and and sort of in a way that you could chart easily with a straight line, growing throughout all centuries, but instead, the church has always been marked by, by peaks and valleys, by great steps forward as well as slow steps backwards. And it just feels like we're in one of these troughs, one of these valleys, one of these plateaus right now. And there could be so many reasons for this, but I think at least one of them is that we've been happy to adopt the world's definitions and, and metrics of success. 
It's like the world has rubbed off on the church far more than the church has rubbed off on the world. I remember hearing uh, um, from a church leader once that church leadership is all about the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. And I looked for it in Scripture. I still haven't found it, but attendance, buildings, and cash, that was the answer he gave. I think instead there are some true signs of spiritual life in the church. Nothing to do with the ABCs. I think of prayerfulness. Are, are people really praying? Are they really seeking the face of the living God? I think of, of purity. Have people gotten rid of the, the idols of the world? What, whatever it is, have we ridden ourselves of those things which keep us from the Lord? And I think of service to, to the poor and needy, to those on the, the fringes of society who are, who are marginalized for a thousand different reasons. Is the church positioning itself to meet the needs of the broader community? And again, I know that there are, are so many wonderful churches across our own community that we partner with and we pray with and we love. And all across the world, there are these great churches. But I think it is so clear that we are in need of renewal in the church. I don't think our church would be marked by prayer and purity and in service to the least of these, if you asked anybody on the street. Whenever I look at the the need for renewal in in the world, in the church, I'm always driven back to the same thing, and that's that's my own need of renewal. Anytime I consider the church, the the places where where she's struggling, where she's weak, I'm immediately reminded of my own weakness, my my own ability to stray so quickly. I see my own anger and and my own frustration with the loss of control in this season, my anger with with my kids or or with, with things just being not the way that they were and the way that I feel like they should be. I see exhaustion in my own life from trying to do things in my own strength. Again, kind of going for those worldly definitions of success. And lethargy, man, so many days I just feel lazy. I can't work up any energy for, for prayer, let alone you know, serving and, and evangelism and all the other things. My life is so up and down. My life has not been a, a line of growth towards heaven. It's been peaks and valleys. A single day can be peaks and valleys. And so looking at my own heart, I know that I need a breakthrough. I need more of God's presence. I need renewal. Now, I've seen too that in in 13 years of local church ministry that this is often the case, that this is true of of so many of us. I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, you know, I want to grow in my faith. I want to be close to God, but I just just don't have time to pray. I'm, I'm just too busy. I'm not like other people. I'm really busy. Or maybe I, I really want to be part of a great and a growing and a, and a thriving church, but I can't serve personally because I, I've got all these other commitments. Or maybe I, I, I want to give generously to the, to the poor and the needy and, and the marginalized and, and to see justice brought about, but I, I can't because I have this huge car payment or whatever it is. And there's no judgment here, but I think every one of us can identify with ways that we look at our own heart and it's not where we want it to be. Parts of our life that are not in line with the vision that we had for ourselves. The vision that that Christ holds out of true Christianity.
In Mark 9, this passage that we just read together, Jesus comes down from the mountain. In fact, this is just after the transfiguration where he's just been, been miraculously restored to his full glory in front of a few of the disciples. All of the glory of Christ comes shining forth just for a moment. Moses and Elijah are there. And then the moment that Jesus comes down the mountain, he comes across his, his disciples and a, and a young boy who is, who is demon-possessed and a, a father who is absolutely desperate. And so he comes down and his disciples explain that they've been trying to cast out this demon. It's, it's like they've had the authority, the ability to cast out demons and to bring out healing all along. But for some reason, they cannot heal this boy. They cannot bring about the, the freeing of this boy from the demon. The father comes up. Verse 22, he says, if you can do anything, Jesus, take pity on us and help us. If you can said Jesus. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I love that line. See, like Isaac in the desert that we looked at last week, this man is in a desperate situation. He loves his son. This is his little boy. And yet for years, this little boy has been possessed by a demon who is trying to kill him, trying to throw him in fires and into the lakes. This father is heartbroken. He's probably tried absolutely everything else. And so finally he finds Jesus' disciples. He's desperate for healing. And yes, he, he struggles with unbelief. Of course he does. We all do. But he's, he's desperate. He recognizes his, his own need. See, our, our state by nature is, is unbelief, and it makes sense. How can we believe in what we don't see, in, in miracles and in healing, and in a Jesus who's been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven? But it's beautiful that this man sees his desperate need of help. He's brought low in this moment, and that's right where Jesus likes to work. Without a word, he, you know, he doesn't even break a sweat. Jesus casts out the demon, and the boy is permanently healed. It says in verse 28, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Now, it's interesting that he could say this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting, and yet we don't see Jesus stop to pray before he heals him. And he certainly doesn't have time to fast, but he heals him in a moment. So it certainly seems like what Jesus is saying is there's, there's a time of preparation, a, a prayer and fasting way of life that has to precede this kind of healing. Now, in, in your scriptures, it might just say prayer and not prayer and fasting. And uh, there's a couple different translations that'll put this different ways. The most reliable transcripts only have praying, but about a third of them include fasting. And so we, we've included it in, in brackets on the screen. But it seems like prayer is the focus of Jesus' word, and, and fasting was either included later, or if he said it originally, fasting was in mind as well. But the sense that Jesus is giving in, in this line is that there, there is a type of extraordinary evil in the world that can't come out by, by the normal types of healings. So like there's a power in the world that even Jesus' own disciples, those who are closest to him, could barely touch. Lloyd-Jones says of this passage, 
The problem with the disciples was that they had rushed into an attempted treatment before they understood the nature of the problem. And here is the lesson that the church so badly needs to learn at this present time. We are all so busy. I wonder whether we are aware of the real depth of problem which confronts us. You failed there, Jesus said to them, because you did not have sufficient power. You were using the power that you had, and you were very confident in it, but you must become aware of your need, of your helplessness. You must realize that you are confronted by something that is too deep for your methods to get rid of, and you need something that can go down beneath that evil power and shatter it, and there is only one thing that can do that, and that is the power of God. I think it's appropriate to see our, our world here, our, our secular culture, our, our world's desire to do life without God. And to see beneath it this, this power of evil that's both quiet and subtle and yet so powerfully strong. This kind, what Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. We have to be convinced of our desperate need of renewal our desperate need for God's power. Jesus is saying you will remain powerless in all of your efforts, all of your hard work, all of your ministries, everything that you are trying to do for me, apart from prayer and fasting, you will remain totally powerless. This kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Now, we're already getting into the second thing, and that's our role in renewal. Not just our need for renewal, but what is the role that we play in renewal? Now, the the disciples weren't wrong for trying to, to heal the boy. They were actually doing all the right things. They just lacked power. And this is a, a, a tension that we have to, to hold when it comes to pursuing renewal. The renewal is, is a work entirely of God. It's not something that, that we can muster up strength for, not something that we do on our own, but renewal is a work of God. And yet it's something that we can, can resist. It's something that we can prevent if we're not actively seeking it. And so it's entirely a work of God, but if we are not pursuing it, we will never see it happen. Now, Jesus' disciples, they're doing the work. Even though Jesus isn't with them, they're, they're going about his business. They're, they're doing what they should be doing. They're, they're out in the streets, and they're, they're sharing the gospel, and they're healing, and they're, they're you know, preaching the gospel, but at a certain point, they hit their limit. Last week, I gave this picture of a, of a sailboat. If you want to go sailing, you have to put up the sail, and then the wind determines if you're going to move along or not, and it's the same with our pursuit of renewal. Our work is not creating wind. We could never do that. But if we're in a sailboat, what we have to do is our, our own part. We put up the sail. And then if God desires and if he wills, then he will blow and we will have movement. But God forbid that we're just sitting in a, in a sailboat arguing with each other or, or trying to figure out the best strategy for the sail without ever putting it up ourselves. Now, our role in renewal, I call it the cycle of renewal. And Jack, I've got it on the next slide there, if you'll hit it. This very fancy graphic that I showed last week, you may remember it. Don't be too impressed. What we see throughout history is this cycle of renewal. It begins with a period of of decline in the church, of declining influence, declining purity in the church. 
Often it's marked by crisis within that season of decline, whether it's a supernatural crisis or it's a, you know, a, a, any kind of economic or, or, you know, geographic crisis, a, you know, tornado, hurricane, something that, that sort of shakes people up. But following a long period of decline, the first thing that happens is holy discontent. Where people are, are, are no longer satisfied with the condition of their own souls. No longer satisfied with being utterly powerless apart from God. No longer satisfied with the status quo in their churches and they begin to seek God's face. After Holy Tent comes a time of preparation. And and you can think of this as kind of like eliminating all the things that would get in the way of renewal. Clearing the ground so that something new might happen. That's preparation. That's actually what we're going to look at here in a minute. Following that comes a contending in prayer. Where typically throughout history, a small group of people have come together and begin to cry out for more of God's presence, cry out for a renewal, and then God begins to do something new and powerful. This includes new patterns of life that make space for God's presence. And so you can think of these three things as our work, the the cultivating of holy discontent, the preparation, and the contending in prayer, and then God's work is the renewal. When God comes and He pours out His Spirit and He brings about the things that we're asking for, a change of heart, conversions for our friends outside the church, strength and unity within a body of believers. When true renewal, beautiful renewal happens, that's a work of God. But so often we have to do our work beforehand. And then lastly, as I mentioned, revival is the extraordinary intensification of that renewal. It's it's the unexplainable growth of the church in a time and place. And I'm so convinced from from the Scriptures that, that God longs to do this in our midst. I'm so convinced from the Old Testament and the New Testament in church history that God is dying to pour out renewal on His people. And he works in this cycle of renewal where there's decline and where there's growth as a way of reminding us of our utter dependence on him, our complete need for his presence in our lives. God longs to do this in our midst, to give us a vision of his glory, to show us the the beauty of Jesus, the nature of our salvation in him, our total dependence on the Holy Spirit. God wants to do this in us. He longs to be gracious to us. Last week we focused on holy discontent. This week I want to focus on preparation. Now preparation is that that critical place where holy discontent moves into action. See, if you're discontent with your your heart, with your sin, with things that are, are in your life, the condition of things, but you don't do anything with that, you'll be stuck there. Preparation is that next step of of decluttering the things in your life that will hold you back from renewal. Now, in my my yard this this spring and summer, we we often do lawn treatments to try to have nice grass, you know, but over the spring and summer, we got this little puppy, and so we were, you know, worried about the chemicals might, you know, really hurt this little puppy, and so we didn't do the the treatments in spring and summer. So this fall, when it was time to come out and, and fix our grass, I mean, our grass looked terrible. It looks awful. It's all patchy and stuff. So I call a, a professional, and I realize this is like the most dad illustration ever. I get that. It's like a lawn care illustration, right? All the other dads in the room are perked up, like, what kind of fertilizer are we talking here? What's your irrigation system like, you know? 
I can go get us a couple of Bud Selects. I could stay in here and look at it with you. So, dad illustration, bear with me. I get the guy out, and I said, what kind of seeds do you want to put down? What kind of fertilizer should we use? And he says, none of that is going to make a difference. He said, your ground is just too hard. What we need to do is come through and, and aerate the lawn. We need to break it up. It's a big machine. It punches like a thousand little holes in it. And then once we soften the soil, then we can come and lay down the seed and the fertilizer and, and growth will happen. But as it is, no matter what seeds you use, you could throw them on this ground and they're not going to take root. And that's, that's what preparation is in our spiritual lives. It's, it's softening the soil of our hearts so that things can begin to take root. You could step into all these new habits and patterns of life, you know, praying, reading your Bible, going to church. You could do all these incredible things, but if you haven't softened the soil of your life, it's going to be like dropping seeds onto rock-hard ground. Now, if I can press the illustration a little bit, being a dad myself, I think there could also be some really obvious weeds in our life as well. And I think of the weeds as the things that you just need to pull up and remove. You don't pull them off from the top, but you pull them up from the root and completely get them out of your life. And so that might be, you know, the things that are obviously wrong, the, the clear sins. This could be greed. It could be, it could be sexual sin or pornography. It could, it could be any number of things that just need to be removed from your life so that God has space to work. But in our passage, Jesus describes preparation as two things, fasting and prayer. And I think both fasting and prayer is a way of, of softening the soil of your heart. So that a new way of life, the, the contending in prayer, the renewal that God wants to bring, it, it, can, it can take root. And so the first thing is, is fasting. Fasting, of course, is the temporary elimination of something good, typically food, for the sake of of something better. We talked about fasting back in March. Actually, it was the last Sunday before the COVID shutdown. And, and I prefer a, a definition of fasting that is, that is talking about food. Whenever fasting comes up in the scriptures, it's talking about cutting food out. And so I, I encouraged in that sermon, stepping into practices of fasting for 24 hours or two days or three days as, as a regular rhythm of life for believers. I also think, especially in our day and age, it's really good to fast from other things, to abstain or, or withhold other things that aren't bad, they're, they're good, they're gifts from God, but they can still harden the soil of our lives. And so food is not bad, food is good, it's a gift of God, but, but if you never miss a meal, you may not even realize how hungry you are apart from food. Netflix isn't bad, Netflix is fine, but if you are watching hours of TV every single night, it will, it, it will numb your mind over time. Social media is not bad in small doses, but if you spend the whole day on your phone, it, it's like a slow and horrible death. See, you know, previous sermon from a couple weeks ago. The thing that fasting does for us is that it shows us our desperate need. Fasting from food shows us that we can barely go a day without food. I don't know if you've fasted before, but every time I fast, I'm blown away by how quickly I get frustrated. Like I'm 7 a.m. and I am like hungry. I'm, I'm hangry already. And I realize that the problem is not just merely that I haven't had breakfast yet. The problem is that anger is in my heart and it's just like covered up with all this food all the time. 
So when you remove that food, all of a sudden you can see what's underneath it. You can see this, this anger and this frustration beneath the surface. There's an old book on fasting and revival that I love, maybe from the 50s. And the author said, even back then, almost everywhere at all times in the church, fasting has held a place of great importance since it is closely linked with the intimate sense of God. Perhaps this is the explanation for the demise of fasting in our day. When the sense of God diminishes, fasting disappears. See, fasting is a way for us to to cultivate a spiritual hunger within ourselves. To not be content to just just consume from the world, to just take all the food in, but instead to, to recognize our desperate need for the presence of God. And if you don't feel strong desires for God, this is one of the things that I recommend. That if you're not feeling strong desires for God, it might be because you have so much clutter in your life and fasting is a way to kind of reveal what that stuff is, to show us your need for God. And so fasting awakens your appetite for God. It clears out the old habits. It softens the soil so that something new and better can take root. So fasting softens the soil, but so does prayer. Now, prayer, nobody, nobody feels confident, nobody feels strong, nobody feels self-sufficient when they're on their knees in prayer. Nobody, nobody feels fantastic and, and, you know, like this spiritual superhero when they're praying. I mean, think of the whole posture of prayer. You're on your knees in total submission to God. Your head is bowed in either confession of sin or, or, or committing yourself again in allegiance to this God who knows what's best for us. The posture of prayer is humility. We're not in control. We need your help, God. Now, what we see in history is that whenever God wants to do something new in his people, he always begins by setting a few of them in prayer. Like every renewal, every revival that I've ever studied, I've been interested in revivals for so long, every one of them can be traced back to a small group of people praying. You go back far enough and there's people gathered together praying. There's one one that I read of, the Hebridean revival that was in the 19th century, this really small group of islands off the coast of England. Tens of thousands of people came to Christ in like a couple of months. And you can actually trace that one back to, I think it was three women praying in the middle of the night around a fire. They had little kids, and so they would sneak out in the middle of the night while they were sleeping, gather together around this fireplace, and pray and pray and pray for revival. That was the spark for this whole, essentially an entire nation coming to faith. We say in our our Friday night prayer meetings, small prayer gatherings precede large outpourings and renewals. But what I want you to see, one of the the big takeaways for this morning is that prayer is not just the thing that happens before the thing. It's not just the thing that might lead to the renewal. Prayer is the beginning of the renewal itself. Prayer is the first fruit. It's, It's the beginning of the cycle of renewal where people have developed this, this holy discontent, discontent with their hearts where people have entered a time of preparation, of prayer and fasting to, to clear out all the rubbish from their lives, when they've gathered together and, and they're contending in prayer for more of God's presence, renewal has already begun. That is the start of the renewal. 
And then what God does with it from there, that's his work. Now, I want to close by bringing us back to this passage, Mark 9. I love that the father is so aware of his desperate need. He loves his son so much. He's, he's desperate for his son's healing. He knows he has no power to bring it about on his own. And like I said, yes, he, he struggles with unbelief and, and he freely admits that. But what I love about him is his desperation. Like Jesus can do a lot with unbelief. Jesus can do a lot with weakness, but, but with pride, there's really not much that can be done. Anytime Jesus approaches a really proud person in the scriptures, for the most part, he just keeps on walking. That should be one of the most terrifying things that we see in the scriptures. But it's when people are, are desperate, when they're completely at the end of themselves, that is where Jesus does his best work. And so I want this to be, to be clear that the, the preparation, the fasting and prayer that I'm, I'm inviting us into, it's not about getting God's approval. It's not about getting God to notice us for all of our religious activity. It's the opposite. It's, it's a way for us to, to realize our, our total need of God. It's to take all of our, our strength and our self-sufficiency and, and to set it down so that, so that God can be our strength so that God can take over in control of our lives. Fasting and prayer is about admitting our helplessness so that Jesus can show up and bring healing. And so in an instant, with just a few words, Jesus rebukes the Spirit. The boy is set free. Father and Son are reunited. And just for a moment, all of the sadness, all of the brokenness, all of the pain, all of the disease, all of the, the, the demonic activity in the world, it's all pushed back. Everything is overcome and, and cleared away just for a moment. It's a little glimpse of eternity. This is a, a physical demonstration of the spiritual renewal that Jesus wants to bring about every single day in all of our lives. And Jesus can do this whenever he wants. He can heal anyone. He can bring renewal because he has authority over life and death. He gained that authority by going directly into death himself, into the grave, so that he might conquer it from the inside out. And just as this young boy in our passage was cursed by sin and evil, so the curse of sin falls upon the Son of God. Jesus takes our sin onto himself on the cross. And so picture this, Jesus, the, the perfect, sinless one, he, he willingly bore the penalty for our sin, our imperfection, all of our sin, all of our pride. He bears all of it onto himself on the cross so that all of his perfect righteousness can be given to us. It's this great transfer of our sin going on to Christ and his perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience coming to us. See, there's a reason why we're all drawn to perfection. There's a reason why we, we don't want to be covered with embarrassment and shame before one another, that we long to be seen as pure and, and, and holy. C.S. Lewis once wrote that anytime you have a longing in this world, it means that there's some kind of satisfaction for it in eternity. Otherwise, why would you have that longing? We have this longing for perfection within us. 
Because it's what Jesus intends for us. He intends for us to be perfect and spotless and righteous in His sight. And not just in all eternity, but right now. But the only way to get that, it's not through hard work, it's it's not through pursuing it, it's not through prayer and fasting even, it's through being united to Christ. Receiving that great exchange of His perfect obedience and righteousness in that place so that when God the Father looks on us, He sees that we're connected to Christ and He sees perfect holiness and righteousness in us who have not earned it or achieved it whatsoever. We long to be made new. We long to be without flaws and blemishes, without embarrassment or shame, but the only place to get it is in Jesus. He is our our Lord, our Savior, our strength, our power, our joy, our everything. And so the message today is that if if you're longing for this right now, if you're longing for renewal, if there is a holy discontent awakening in your heart, if you are interested in in a season of preparation where by prayer and fasting you're eliminating all the junk from your life, if you're interested in gathering in prayer with other people, what that means is that the renewal is already underway. In you, in us, in this moment, the renewal has begun. Let's pray.